0: What do we do with a God who sanctions violence? Hello and welcome to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and a very special guest on the show this time is Matthew Lynch, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. He's the author of a number of books and is the co-founder of the OnScript podcast, a podcast focused on providing engaging conversations on Bible and theology. Matthew's new book from IVP America is called Flood and fury, Old Testament violence and the shalom of God. Matthew approaches two of the most violent passages in the Old Testament, the flood and the Canaanite conquest, and offers a way forward that doesn't require softening or ignoring the most troubling aspects of these stories. And it's very good. I've read it. What do we do with the violence, Matthew, in the Old Testament?
1: Well, we've got a number of options as to what to do with it. So The approach that I take in the book is to sit with the texts where we see violence, to read them slowly, carefully, to not rush to judgment, but also not to deny the hard aspects of those passages that we find difficult. So, you know, I think the approach that I, I suggest is a combination of letting the Bible have its say and letting the reader have their say as well. And it's the combination of both of those things that I think makes for an interesting discussion.
0: Yeah. What are some of the violent passages and the violent stuff that people struggle with in the Old Testament?
1: Well, I think two of the big ones that I address in the book are the flood story and the conquest. But those, as I talk about in the intro briefly, there are multiple kinds of problem of violence in the Old Testament. And so, It's not one thing. And I think it's important to recognize that there are problems of violence. So we might also stumble over things like, can we or should we pray the violent psalms? What do we do with violent laws? The fact that God advocates uh, violence within the legal system certainly what we would consider violence nowadays. Uh, What about portraits of sexualized violence in the prophetic texts? Uh, where judgment is framed in terms that seem like uh, sexual acts of acts of sexual violence, um, you know there. So there are a number of uh, kinds of problem of violence in the Old Testament, and I think each one sort of requires its own approach and lens. and And so that's why I think a a patient approach is important, but difficult in the, in the day of quick takes and hot takes and all that kind of stuff. It's 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 a challenge.
0: Yes, and, and your book is a very patient reading of these, of these two difficult um, aspects of Scripture, the Flood and the, the Canaanite Conquest. Why can we not separate God's wrath or his anger from his justice, do you think?
1: Well, at least as it's portrayed in the Bible, uh, wrath is a kind of engine driving God's concern for justice. And, and so if you get rid of divine wrath, if you just sort of erase that from Scripture— and, and pull those threads out, a whole bunch of other stuff is attached to it that maybe we wouldn't want to let go of. And and so, you know, it's analogous to the anger that might drive someone to take action on behalf of a vulnerable person. And so we, we see that throughout scripture of, you know, especially in passages that I'm thinking of, like Isaiah 63, where the people are in exile, or potentially their post-exilic period, but they're longing for God to intervene, and they want him to tear the heavens open and come down in fury. And, and the image is of a God coming in anger. And so God's anger is good news if you're the one needing deliverance. And, and I think maybe our discomfort with wrath reflects maybe uh, the fact that we've often seen anger spill over into immoral acts and uh, undue violence. So I, I think retaining that place for wrath is important. That doesn't mean that every instance of divine wrath in the Old Testament is, is then easy to deal with if you just look at it that way, but I think it's a big part of the discussion about wrath.
0: So God's wrath, or wrath as we say in New Zealand or in wrath. England, uh, would, be, would be connected mainly with his sense of justice and with his desire yeah. to see right done.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. What's the best, you've probably already answered this actually, but what's the best approach to interpreting violent texts in your view?
1: Well, yeah, so we, we could talk, about, so I, I mentioned a, a patient-slow approach, but that doesn't necessarily define an approach as such. You know, normally I think people, when they say an approach to the question of violence, are referring to a, a, a kind of school of thought that, that's taken by interpreters throughout history. So maybe it's like the divine command theory approach to violence that Augustine and Calvin uh, take later on and many uh, modern interpreters as well, which basically says that uh, if God commands it, it is by definition just. And so we need to adjust our, our definition of justice to what God commands. And then the problem is with us as the onlooker, and it seems like injustice, but we know because it's from God that it's not. And there's there's something important that's retained in that approach, but I think also some difficulty. So there are a number of different approaches that, uh, whether it be progressive revelation, we as we move through Scripture, we see more and more clearly what God is doing in the world and how God should be understood. So, But I think each of those approaches on their own is limited, and so... I lay out, drawing from Roger Olson in the beginning of the book, eight different, I think I have eight, uh, different approaches to uh, texts of terror, text violent texts in the Old Testament and suggest maybe we need to combine different approaches, but also we need to develop field specific uh, instincts as we're reading the Bible and and to read along the grain of the text and ask the question constantly, what is this story trying to communicate? And and I think taking that literary theological approach to these passages uh, is kind of yields the best insights and and the best outcomes.
0: Why is it important to read towards Jesus? I like the way you put that. Reading, we have to read the Old Testament towards Jesus. Now, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so I'm 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 making a slight distinction there between what is known as a, a Christocentric or a, even a cruciscentric approach to the problem of violence, which says that we need to look at the Old Testament and and make sure that we see an image of God there that looks exactly like what we see in Jesus. And, and while I think there are some good instincts behind that, I think it flattens the Bible and you lose the sense of the text that even makes sense of Jesus in the first place. So Jesus doesn't come to us fully explained. Jesus comes to us in Scripture as one whose actions and teachings need interpreting. And, and so the New Testament writers are constantly going back to the Old Testament to make sense of what Jesus was up to. So to reverse that and just think that we can take Jesus as a self-defining lens and read those violent texts through that is, I think, has things backwards. So instead, I suggest reading toward Jesus and, and starting with the question, in what ways does this story ultimately help form and shape the person of Jesus that we come to know in the gospel stories. Because for Jesus, uh, and this is not just a narrative point, it's also a historical point. You know, Jesus, uh, a faithful Jewish boy growing up in Galilee as an adult, then he's immersed in the world of Israel's scriptures. And that's his formative educational environment, albeit mediated through the culture of his time, but also he's he's deeply formed by these scriptures. So how is it that Jesus, being so immersed in what we come to know as the Old Testament, was so deeply formed by them that he lived and taught as he did? So what is it about them that lead to someone like Jesus? So that's, that's kind of what makes me go back to those Old Testament texts and say, is there a way that There's a trajectory leading forward to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean every text, if you kind of parachute down into it, has a direct arrow pointing at Jesus where you can look at it and say, ah, that looks like what Jesus said here or there or like his ministry. But it's a hopeful approach that says, ultimately, this formed the character and person of Jesus. So I want to see how that is.
0: Mm. Okay, let's go back to the very beginning of the Bible. As you do in your book, you deal with the flood, but you start with, I think, an absolutely wonderful uh, section on creation uh, and on violence and shalom. Now how do Genesis 1 and 2 provide a framework then by which we can judge all the violence in the Bible?
1: Yeah, I, I think the, how a book starts is important um in terms of setting the tone the terms of discussion in the book framing our perspective and i think the bible it gives us genesis 1 and 2 to help orient us to the to the road ahead and because we're many of us are so used to the bible we think that it was just inevitable that you start out with a creation story and and in the ancient world it wasn't you could have started out with events happening in the divine realm There are lots of other possible places you could have started. The Bibles chose to start here with two creation stories, as if they're like two lenses and glasses. And so then I was wondering, okay, if we look through those, how do they orient us to the story? And I think a couple of the things are that Genesis 1, for instance, doesn't begin with violence. It begins with a creation story of God turning the formlessness of the pre-creation state, which is a, a concept hard for us moderns to get our heads around, but it's basically the ancient Near Eastern way of saying nothing. They didn't have that same category. It, they spoke in terms of formlessness, but a benign, it's a benign formlessness that God gives shape to. So there's no act of violence in the creation of the world, which would have been a bit striking for an ancient reader. And also humans are given rule and power over the animal world, but they're not allowed to, it's a vegetarian diet, so that doesn't involve the killing of animals. Which if you look at uh, ancient Assyrian models of kingship, that uh, control over animals was exercised preeminently in the royal hunt, where you would go and, and uh, you know kill a lion, ideally, to demonstrate your power over the animal kingdom and over the human kingdoms of the world. It's a way of enacting your imperial power. Uh, Brent Strawn brings this out brilliantly in an article that he wrote on this. So, so in 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 various ways, and I unpack more of these in the book. Genesis one is telling us that there's that violence has no basic place in creation. It's not part of the DNA of creation. It's it's something that's a deformation of what should be the case, and that's important because that means that human society doesn't depend on violence it it doesn't it's not a necessary part of the world it's not part of our dna so so then that sets the the pathway in terms of thinking about okay if god's redemptive work is about the restoration and renewal of creation then that means that violence is something God is working to eradicate from the world, so it it helps shape our understanding of the ongoing narrative as well, including the work of Jesus in his death and resurrection.
0: How does violence ruin creation in those early chapters of Genesis, do you think?
1: Yeah, this was really interesting. As I was doing work on my previous book, um, portraying violence in the Old Testament um, in the Hebrew Bible. One of the things that struck me as I was looking, especially at Genesis 4 to 6, is that the the chief work of violence in the world, like the chief effect, is that it tears apart creation. Um, so Cain kills Abel and in response the ground cries out, you know, with the blood of his brother and it refuses to yield its produce to Cain. And the reason he has to wander is because the ground won't produce for him. You know, so there's Yes, it's a punishment from God, but it also follows naturally from what happened after he kills his brother. So the ground is involved in reacting to the violence that Cain perpetrates. And then you, if you fast forward to Genesis 6, there's this dramatic moment where it says that God looked at the earth, and behold, it was ruined. And this is prior to the flood. And the thing that ruined it in the story is violence and and um you know genesis 6 says that all flesh humans and animals had corrupted their ways upon the earth and this was the cause of creation coming unraveled and falling apart so i I think exactly how that works isn't explained in the bible it's assumed and i think the assumption is based on the idea that humans are made from the earth there's a intimate connection there are ties that That bind humans to the land, and of course, if one human kills another or acts violently toward another, the land is going to respond to that. so it's a it's a different worldview than I think a lot of us are used to.
0: Yes, and one of the things I found fascinating about your section on on the flood was that you make the the absolutely correct point, I think, that the reason that God decreates, the world is because of his grief Mm. over violence, not necessarily because of his wrath or anger, but because of his grief. Now, how does God grieve over violence in those early chapters of Genesis?
1: Yeah, so God's looking at the world, you know, and seeing that it's ruined. And the text goes on and says that it pained him to his heart. And the word there for pain is the same term used to describe the woman's pain and childbearing, so it's as if the effects of the fall are hurting god and and causing God grief in the story and and so yeah there i you know you read some commentaries and they say that that God's um judgment is what's meted out on the earth, and the story never says that and and so then you go back to it, and this is part of what I was. Um, analyzing in, in that section on the flood. And you see that the ru- the earth is already ruined prior to the flood coming. So then the question is, well, what's the point of the flood? And I use the analogy of, of a potter turning clay back into useful formlessness in order to recreate. And, and so essentially the flood is God returning that that clay that he was spinning on the on the potter's wheel and had you know he saw all these air bubbles and and things that you can't put in the the kiln and he and he turns it back into a ball in order to reshape it and the story even is told that way where where the creation essentially collapses in on itself the windows of the heaven open the fountains of the deep erupt you know it's back to Genesis one verse two watery formlessness and then Genesis eight one. The Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, blows over the water, creates dry land, and we're back in the world of Genesis 1, where God recreates out of the watery formlessness. So the divine action in the story is formative, primarily. What does God do to ensure justice after the flood? I think, from memory, I've written
0: down here, you describe Genesis 8 and 9 as a disarmament process, yeah, which yeah. is a great phrase. <laughs>
1: Yeah, when I was in I I described in the book how when I was in junior high, I was it was during the time of the strategic arms reduction treaty between the US and the Soviet Union. And um and for whatever reason that kind of captured my imagination. And and it I think there's something of that to the post flood account in Genesis eight and nine. So so God he promises that he'll keep creation going in the face of human sin in chapter eight. And so he says, as long as seed time and harvest, summer and winter endure, I will keep creation going. So he got, and even says, and this is surprising, that he's going to no longer curse the ground. So you get this insinuation that the the curse is even lifted from the earth, but yet you still have human sin in the world. And so then uh, provisions are put in place, like God puts the bow in the sky as the sign of the covenant the hebrew term there keshet is just the same term as like a bow and arrow bow of god hanging his bow up uh, after the flood in in, or, in other words i'm not going to engage in this sort of form uh, re- return to chaos again and and then he solidifies the deal through the covenant itself which is a guarantee that he'll uh, not only protect creation from ruin, but also create conditions for flourishing again. So oh sorry, yeah, also in chapter nine, of course, he uh, God institutes instead of sevenfold vengeance that you had with Cain, you know, where uh, God would avenge his killer seven times, God's God institutes one for one vengeance where anyone who takes a human life, uh, their life would be taken. So that's the sort of justice principle. Of lex talionis, or you know, eye for an eye type idea, that um, strikes us as maybe um, severe, but it's but it's the principle of justice of, of equivalence in in judgment.
0: Yes, yes. Well, with the time we've got left, I think we've got about 10 minutes left. Matthew, let's come on and talk a bit about the Canaanites Mm. um, and the book of Joshua, which is a very violent book, um, Mm. really. And yet a surprising book, as you point out. In what ways is the book of Joshua not actually a straightforward tale of genocide?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a lot to this. So I'll just highlight a couple of things quickly. So first of all, it seems very interested in rooting out the problem of idolatry within Israel. And this is, this is uh, I think, surprising for a lot of readers because if you think that the problem is over there with the Canaanites, Joshua in his farewell speech to the Israelites says, get rid of the idols that are among you. They're within the community. And by the strict measure of Deuteronomy, all the people who perpetrated idolatry should have been killed. But Joshua just says, put them away. The book also, so it deals with the, re- the reality that Canaan is within Israel. And then it also deals with the idea that Israel is within Canaan in the sense that uh, Rahab, the figure right there in the front of the book, Joshua 2, is the most loyal Yahweh adherent person in the whole book, perhaps save Joshua. And she's lifted up as this exemplary Canaanite woman, but yet she's a prostitute, um, who, a, a, a woman prostitute. And from a, a kind of a read of the Old Testament, you know that that idolatry is often described as a kind of prostitution. You know, the people prostituted themselves to the women of the gods of Moab um, when they were in the wilderness. And so she, she seems like a threat, but it turns out that she represents an ideal and it, that the book of Hebrews picks up as an ideal of faith. So the book is surprising in so many ways, and we don't have time to unpack them, but there are many, many surprises in the book that that I I go into.
0: One or two more questions, perhaps. Mm -hmm. How does does Joshua present two perspectives on the conquest?
1: Yeah, so uh, I talk about, and I I use the terminology from my friend Brad Jerzak, uh, of a minority report and a majority report, where the majority report, you have these statements throughout Joshua that... They left nothing alive that breathes. And this is drawing straight from the book of Deuteronomy, where that's what the people were supposed to do to the Canaanites. So it sounds like the conquest was utterly successful. They wiped out all the Canaanites, and they were all dead. And and it even summarizes the conquest in those terms in chapters 10 and 11. But then you have all these other statements that suggest that There were lots of Canaanites still running around, that the conquest was gradual, that Canaanites were incorporated into Israel. Now, it was a much more messy process. And so I suggest that these are not just sloppily woven together um, conflicting reports, but that each strand of the story has a particular purpose, that the more punchy, absolute line of the story is part of the rhetoric influenced by Deuteronomy to um, emphasize that God has been faithful to his promises and also to call the people to this high demand to be utterly and completely loyal to Yahweh. But then you have this other strand that picks up on the historical realities of the conquest and settlement period and emergence of Israel itself to add color, depth, and nuance to that, to challenge Israel's assumptions about who's in and who's out. Mm. And wars are messy, as we know. Yeah. Yes. So um,
0: so the idea, that, was the idea of total separation then from Canaanite religious practices, was that the idea, rather than total destruction of the actual people?
1: Yeah, I think it was. Um, that's not to say that I don't think there was any violence. And that's, you know, I wish I kind of came to the end of the study and was like, you know, I, I think it was just this peace, peaceful protest as they walked through into the land and so on. Um, but on the other hand, I do think that m- if a simplistic read of the story is is often mistaken, the simplistic read says that it was just total annihilation, but a deeper read of the story suggests that what Deuteronomy was really calling for and what Joshua even commends as well is for the people to strictly stay away from the gods of the land. Uh, Joshua, in his farewell speech, says to the people, stay away, you know, don't follow after the gods that are among you, among the nations that still remain with you. And so there's an assumption at the end of the book that, hey, you're going to keep living with these people. What you need to do to be loyal to the Torah, which is a big theme in the book, it's to separate yourself from the gods of the land. And I think that's what the the book ultimately is commending uh, and and not uh, a kind of total annihilation of the canaanite people
0: and there's lots of mercy in the book of joshua i mean mm-hmm. look at rahab they're one yeah. of the one of jesus ancestors so there you yeah. go
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah one more question i think we've got mm-hmm. time in in what ways then do you think matthew does god's mercy tower over his wrath or judgment
1: yeah i think that's a big theme throughout Scripture, and and that was a part of the book I at at the end where I wanted to pan out from the particulars of those stories and say, what can we say about God's character? And to do that, I I was thinking, well, where would we go to kind of grapple with the fullness of God's character? And and Scripture offers a a nice summary of what it thinks of God's character in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 where this is the moment when Israel had just you know uh, worshipped the golden calf, and Moses is up on the mountain, and there's a whole question about whether God was going to go with in them into the land. And Moses sees God's presence pass by, and God says, The Lord, the Lord of God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and showing a steadfast loyalty to thousands of generations, but not leaving the guilty unpunished and they're punished to the third and fourth generation. And the what I the reason I picked that passage is not just because I like it, but because it's quoted numerous times in the Old Testament and resonances of that claim are scattered throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. It's like a a, a real anchor text for many many other texts that are thinking about God's character. And in that anchor text it says that God's mercy and compassion extend to thousands of generations and his judgment maximum to four. And so I joke in the book that there's a mathematical ratio of there of, of a minimum of 500 to one where God's mercy outweighs his judgment. And, and I, But I think that's a crucial piece of how the Bible thinks about the interaction of God's mercy and judgment. These are not two counterbalancing facets of his character— He's, God has a wildly imbalanced character, and that's good news.
0: Yes, and I think he waits something like 430 years before he uh, judges the Canaanites, doesn't he? He gives them a very, yes. very long time, talking of his patience, Uh, He gives a very, very 430 years is a long time to repent. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Matthew Lynch, fabulous. Thank you so much. The book from IVP America is called Flood and Fury, Old Testament, Violence and the Shalom of God. It will make you think again about passages that you think you have read and know well. It will bring out all sorts of little patient details, uh, which is what I love about this book, Uh, very patient scholarship that Matthew gives us. So, Matthew, thank you very much indeed. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes, Matthew. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks for having me, Brent. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more
0: great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com/slash God Story Podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As
1: always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.